This is a public service announcement with guitar. And welcome, welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. Ed Smith is away this week. Your Rights at Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Nearly 150 labor radio and podcast shows just like this. You can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. And we want to thank all of our listeners who contributed during WPFW's Fall Pledge Drive. We really appreciate your generous support. Thank you. Thank you. If you didn't get a chance to make a pledge, you can still do so. WPFWFM.org or on Cash App at dollar sign WPFW. As always, we'd love to hear from you today on this show. Call in 202-588-0893. Michael is standing by. If you've got questions about your rights at work, or if you just want to chat with uh, with me or our guest, 202-588-0893. On today's show, Michigan Congressman Andy Levin will remember AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, and he's going to tell us about the Keeping Workers Safe Act just introduced in Congress. Then Jack Metzger talks about his book, Bridging the Divide and the Differences Between Working Class and Middle Class Cultures in the United States. And we'll wrap up with singer-songwriter George Mann, who's just released a brand new CD, remember CDs? A World Like This, and we'll hear some great music from that CD. Let's start off with this clip from Congress on Tuesday. Uh, Madam Speaker, I come before you with many wonderful colleagues to honor the life and legacy of Richard L. Trumka. I knew Rich for over a quarter century, and I enjoyed working with him in numerous capacities. I served as Assistant Director of Organizing at the AFL-CIO, working closely with Rich and seeing his drive through innumerable organizing, legislative, and political campaigns throughout the nation. We created something called Union Summer, 1,000 young people on union organizing and bargaining campaigns throughout this nation, and they were incredibly diverse. Something like two-thirds were women and over half were people of color. And... This picture comes from the launch of the Union Summer campaign. And after Union Summer was over, the officers gave me a a little framed copy of this picture. And Rich Trumpka's comments were classic Trumpka. He said, Levin, you did a good, no, an outstanding job on this effort. But thank God those kids of yours look like Mary. That was Rich Trumpka. (laughs) Still remember it. Congressman Andy Levin, uh, also former assistant director of organizing at the AFL-CIO, where I used to bump into him uh, in the hallways. Congressman Levin, or do I just call you Andy? Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Call me Andy, brother. So good to hear your voice. (laughs) Yours too, brother. Yours too. 
Uh, listen, I, I had to pull that piece of, of your wonderful comments uh, from the, the floor on Tuesday because, you know, people remember Rich and they remember, you know, the speeches and all the heavy stuff. But Rich had this wonderfully funny side that, that you knew well. Yeah, well, and he was, he, he, he really had a, a lot of amazing uh, sort of interpersonal uh, skills and habits and quirks. Um, I'll tell you, thinking about Union Summer, you know, when we were getting that ready, I, I had to try to find local unions to host these 1,000 young people all in 25 sites around the country. And I was, you remember, that was the early days of cell phones, Chris. And <laughs> so I would work, and then I literally would take a taxi home, which is the only time I ever did that, to stay on the phone calling West Coast locals, you know, at 8, 9, 10 at night, East Coast, you know, in, in Washington. And one day I get called up to the Secretary Treasurer's office. I say, okay. So I go up there. And, of course, this is in the very early days of my 11 years there, right? And so I go up there, and Rich slides across his desk to me this very thick stack of papers, <laughs> and it's stapled. And it was my cell phone bill. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Month. And it was, Chris, it was $1,400. Oh, my God. <laughs> Remember, there was no – people don't even know. There was no, like, you know, all, all you paid by the minute. And oh yeah, oh yeah. He said, "Well, he said, well, Andy, you know, we can't really do that, can we?" And I said, "No, sir. You know, I guess we can't do that." And he said, "Okay, well." And then he went on to talk about other things. But and honestly, God, I didn't know what I was going to do because I still had to find a way to make to reach out to all those locals. But he was, you know, he didn't come down hard on me. He just made it clear that, you know. He was sharing the information and that I had to find another way to get things done. And that's, that's you know, he was, he was just a great guy to work for. Well, and, and, and the thing is, you talk about this in, in your floor remarks. You know, he's a guy who, who came up, I mean, literally, you know, from the ground. I mean, he worked in the coal mines. He worked in the coal mine. His dad, his grandfather worked there. He was from Nemecolin, Pennsylvania, in coal country in southwest Pennsylvania. And, you know, because of the union and, his, you know, his, what his dad and his family made and the benefits they made, he was able to go to college and to law school. And uh, then he uh, quickly became a leader there. And anybody know, who knew him would, could see why, right? He was just – he was very uh, well-spoken. He had a booming voice. Uh, he's whip-smart. And so he rose to be the president of the mine workers at a very young age and then it led them through some iconic strikes and, and campaigns. You know, I remember as a young activist, the Pittston strike, I was like, whoa, that was oh, yeah. an unbelievably well-executed strike, you know. And so I was really more from the SEIU side. You know, when I was called in by uh, Andy Stern actually called me when I just finished law school. I was just about to and, and worked at, in President Clinton's Labor Department, and I had accepted a job as a you know, union-side labor lawyer. And Andy called and said, well, you have to come back to SEIU and help run the field operation for Sweeney, Trumka, and Chavez-Thompson. And, 
anyway, I can tell that story if you want, but it worked, you know, I was able to do that, and, and that's how I met Rich in person. And, you know, it was just such an honor to work for him and with him all those years. Yeah, he's one of the, you know, this is one of the things I, I really love about, you know, about labor leaders is, you know, I, I've met heads of companies and, you know, honestly, they get pretty full of themselves. And I, I don't know, and maybe you have insight into this. There, there's something about no matter how high you rise in the labor movement, something keeps those folks feet on the ground. You know, I, I have this story. I remember it was, it was, you know, the president's room in the AFL-CIO uh, is, is there's a bathroom right off of there. And I remember I was in there one time because our, our office is right next to there. And I, I looked to my left and, you know, Cecil Roberts from the mine workers is, is just hanging out there. And we, you know, he's just chatting to me like an ordinary guy. And I'm like, you're the president of the mine workers, dude. You know? Yeah. Well, they, you know, they lead these big organizations. I mean, Rich ultimately led the, you know, Federation representing the majority of unionized workers in our country, 50-plus unions, 12-plus million workers. But I think because if you go into union halls, as Rich did, if you walk picket lines, as he did, if you sit with organizing committees who are trying to form a new union when their employers are trying to crush them, and you sit with rank-and-file workers and talk to them, you know, I I hope it keeps you grounded. It it certainly kept him grounded. And, you know, think of the story about when Barack Obama was running for president. And Rich Trump, of course, was campaigning for him and, and watching the news. But he realized that there might be some hesitancy of uh-huh, people, uh-huh. like, from where he came from to vote for a black person for president of the United States. Right. And I was pretty impressed. I don't know if you remember this. He confronted it so directly oh, yeah. in one oh, big yeah. speech, but then on, on the stump all over. And I think that really made a difference in 2008. I tell you, I, I tell you, Andy, you know, uh, we, we miss we miss Rich in so many ways. But but his his ability to speak from that particular place as a frankly, as an older white middle class guy you know, uh, on things like race or sexism, right? Um, you know, he, he, he could really, I think, call that out in a way that, that really had an impact, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So that was, you know, that was a great thing. And, of course, his loss was so shocking, you know, because uh, uh, he, he was, it's not like he had a big illness and he was sick no. and would he pull through or not. It was just boom, you know, he's out camping with the family and, <laughs> And he's gone. And uh, so it was really shocking. I remember, I honestly, I didn't know what to do. And so I called now the president of the AFL-CIO, but the secretary treasurer, Liz Schuler. Sure. And I didn't, sure. I didn't know what to say, but we just, you know, we just uh, talked about Rich and how shocking it was. And, you know, I told her, I have so much confidence in you, <laughs> you know, we didn't, nobody wanted this, but, um, and I'm really grateful that she's picked up the mantle of leadership when the executive council asked her to. So that's, that's big shoes to fill. And, and, and she's making history in her own right as the first woman to lead the AFL-CIO. But, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So he was, he yeah. was quite a guy though. No, and I appreciate, you know, all the, the, the wonderful words that you and your colleagues said uh, in Congress. You know, it's, it's important to, to get that out, get it on the record. And so I appreciate that. Uh, and, and before we go on, because I do want to talk about the, uh, 
the, the legislation that uh, you introduced. Uh, but I, I also, as long as I've got you on the horn for a couple of minutes, two things I want to mention, of course, the, the PRO Act, uh, you know, which which has been, you know, sort of renamed in, in honor of, of, of Rich. Where, where are we at on that? Obviously, we've been we've been pushing so hard on that for it seems like, you know, years now, um, you know, from from where you sit. What do you think? Well, you know, to me, the PRO Act is the single most important piece of legislation, bar none, if we want to reverse the horrifying chasm of income and wealth inequality in this country because you can you know i'm 100 percent for the raise the wage act i'm 100 percent for um all the you know many different laws at increasing uh what you know income for poor people like the child tax credit and all these things in the build back better act but until and unless workers are free to form unions and bargain collectively in this country again we're not going to have a check on corporate power and on workers being able to get a, a decent living for themselves at the bargaining table. And, and it would unleash, Chris, it wouldn't just like help the existing unions. It would unleash new organizing in ways that none of us can predict, right? It'd be new unions in addition, and it would be a new flowering of workers, uh, you know, organizations in this country. In terms of where it's at, I mean, obviously we passed it in the House last Congress. Right. I'll never forget when Speaker Pelosi asked me to, you know, get, uh, get respond respond to the Republican motion to recommit and to give the weekly address that week. Um, and then this Congress, we passed it again. But it's all about the Senate. That was true with the Employee Free Choice Act that you and I worked on together. That was true um, uh-huh. in the Carter administration, for God's sakes, where there was a filibuster. So. Um, and we couldn't get the two Democratic senators from Arkansas, as I recall, to support. Yep. I mean, we were yep. I was a teenager then. But anyway, um, so I think that what where it's at is keep on keeping on. We need more people in the street uh, putting our bodies down, marching and telling the story of the unbelievable flowering of worker activity. There is striketober. Right, organizing campaigns, mm-hmm. a really wide variety of industries. We have to tell the story of what how, what employers are doing when their workers try to organize and how they, you know, frustrate their rights. So that's why I got so involved in the in the in the Amazon campaign in Bessemer, because uh-huh. I just thought it's just such and you know we got to educate ourselves and realize that until we pass, you know, fundamental legislation like this to change things, it's not you know, we're not going to get there. So I don't really, the closer we get to passing it, the more 1 million corporate lobbyists are going to descend on the Senate and try to oh, stop yeah. it. Oh, yeah. So it can't just, this is not like a friendly conversation of representatives and senators in the halls of the Capitol. This has to be a, a people power movement to demand change. And uh, so I just encourage anybody who can hear us to, uh, you know, use social media, organize actual demonstrations, go visit your, you know, member of the House and Senate, even though the House passed it. It's all about raising the temperature on this. And uh, so, I, you know, we, we've got a ways to go. Because obviously, even if we get all 50 Democrats on board and we're not quite there yet in the, in the Senate, you know, there's the filibuster. Yep. And yep. if we can get Joe Manchin to make some little adjustment to the filibuster – 
for to, for voting rights in this country. I doubt we'll get them to, you know, go along with killing the filibuster altogether, which is what should happen if we want to have a functioning democracy. <laughs> My two cents on that. Your your, your lips to, to to God or or or, or you know whatever it takes it words. But listen, before we we uh, we let you go, I, I do want to talk about this Keeping Workers Safe Act that uh, you and Senator Schatz. Uh, it uh, introduced last week. Uh, can you tell people briefly what that's all about? Yeah, I mean, it's about the what your you know the the topic of your the, the name of your radio program. It's about mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. workers' rights, expanding workers' rights. What ha- so this is about OSHA, and this is about the power of truth and communication. You know, when OSHA deliver uh, you know administers large penalties or when one employer has multiple serious violations or they have repeated, you know, smaller violations over and over. A lot of times the people in that community never hear about it. The, you know, the, the press isn't alerted. Um, the w- union movement in that area or, or trade or industry associations aren't, aren't alerted. So this bill is very simple. It says, let's throw some sunshine on worker health and safety. And anytime there's a violation issued by a, you know, a, 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 a citation issued by OSHA for $60,000 or more, or there are a pattern of violations or repeated smaller violations, they have to issue a public notice. They have to put it in the press. They have to put it in their website and they have to, uh, distribute it to relevant organizations, and it's it's that simple, Chris. But that would how big a change would that be? Because workers <laughs> would know about it and take action on it. Well, so so let me let me. I don't. I do not want to throw cold water on this because you know I you know obviously I'm totally supportive of this, but I also know just a little bit about OSHA, and I forget the latest stats. We do this every year around Workers Memorial Day, but I mean, you know, we're so short. I mean, OSHA especially after the last four years. I mean, I'm amazed. I mean, you know, if anybody left over there survived the Trump years, right? Um, and, and I, you know, you just talked about the million lobbyists that are going to, you know, you know, descend on us over, over you know, the, the PRO Act. Uh, I got to imagine that this would be right in their sights as well, right? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, so for one thing, we uh, in, I don't even know where we're at with this in, on Build Back Better in terms of the negotiations. But the way we passed Build Back Better in the House, we increased the penalties uh, under OSHA by a factor of 10. And mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. As, a, as revenue raisers, right? We also included the PRO Act penalties for violating workers' freedom to form unions. And we also included uh, higher penalties for violations of wage and hour. So, you know, we're trying to get at this every which way. But there's no question that the, the corporations will fight over anything that gives workers more knowledge, more power on safety and health. But that's never stopped us before. It can't stop nope. us now. We've got to keep fighting for uh, these kind of changes. So now, <laughs> you and I used to march around about it. Oh, yeah. In Congress. So, you, you know, we need people to march still, and I need to propose the legislation. We work together to really make change. And I guess that was my last question, Andy, which is, you know, you're, you're on the inside there, you know, you're, you're up, you know, God help you in, in, in the halls of Congress and, and, 
you know, from from where we sit, you know, it looks like it is just so hard to get anything, you know, passed, right? You know, I mean, they just uh, so uh, give us, give. I guess I'm asking for give, give me a little hope here. You know, <laughs> me, yeah, what's well, the good word, brother? What's is, the good word? I, so you know, it is hard, and th- there's several things about this. One is that you know our margins are just so thin. I mean, mm-hmm, when, when the mm-hmm. Great Society legislation was passed and the New Deal legislation was passed, in both those eras, in the House and the Senate, President Johnson, President Roosevelt, they had massive majorities in both right. houses. Right. And we have raised – so one thing is we have to elect way more pro-worker uh, senators and representatives. Uh, and then we need to get rid of the filibuster. But there's a layer of this, Chris, that's kind of – uh, BS, which is the press just loves all they want to report about is who's fighting with whom and all this. Right. We right. we we have passed, you know, in the American Rescue Plan, one point nine trillion dollars, massive legislation that prevented a real recession. And, you know, the, the latest reporting is that poverty was at the lowest level uh, since yes. they recorded yes. it when you include government benefits. And, of course, we're lifting 40-plus percent of kids out of poverty just with one measure, the child tax credit. And now we're on the cusp of passing really transformative legislation, stuff we've wanted forever, child care for everybody, universal pre-K for three- and four-year-olds. And, and all anybody wants to focus on is, oh, well, what's being left out or, you know, are we going to pass the BIF or the BBB first or second? And what I can tell you is progressives are holding out with whatever leverage we have to make sure we pass both of these things. And the Build Back Better Act is really robust on climate change, really robust at lifting up the working class and the poor people of this country. And so, you know, people love to focus on the sausage making, but my eyes are on the prize of, transformative legislation and i think we're going to get it done and we're going to get it done in very short order yeah it may not be today but within the next week or two and that's going to be amazing well that is what i wanted to hear michigan congressman andy levin i am so happy to talk to you and uh frankly we're going to have to have you back on as this thing wends through congress but i really appreciate you taking time to talk with us today thanks chris great talking to you take care of yourself you too take care Michigan Congressman Andy Levin, also former assistant director of organizing at the AFL-CIO, keeping up the good fight, as he says, there in Congress for working folks. All right, next up, a book out called Bridging the Divide, and it's written by a guy named Jack Metzger, and we've got him on a line with us now. Jack, thanks for being on the show on Your Rights at Work. And let's, uh, let's get you unmuted there, brother. There we go. Now you can hear me? Yes, sir. There you go. <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry. Right. Thank you That's... for having me is what I said. There we go. I, I can yeah. see it, but I couldn't hear it. All right. <laughs> so this book, Bridging the Divide, is really an interesting idea. You're, you're looking to try and figure out the differences between working class and middle class cultures uh, in the United States. What's the what's the idea there? What what, what were you looking for? Um, a couple things, <clears throat> and I say professional middle class. So when I define middle class, it's uh, professional or managerial workers, 
uh, usually with a college education and a six-figure six-figure income. And that's uh, mostly seen as the mainstream culture that everybody should sort of be measured, uh, measured by. Um, and one of my major points is, well, hey, there's an alternative culture, equally valid and valuable, uh, alternative class culture in the working class, all colors, um, that is ignored. And we don't know that it's uh, there. And that actually diminishes uh, middle-class life as well as uh, disadvantaging uh, working-class life. So I try to tell the story of these two cultures, uh, how they conflict, how they often complement one another, but how working-class culture is by and large ignored, not known that it's there. And I and I'm wondering if it's a question of semantics or or class. We don't like to talk about class in this country, but I know from some of the reading I've I've done in the past that you know nobody really or very few people want to be thought of as working class. There's this kind of something that is something to be escaped from, I suppose. And everybody wants to be middle class, right? And 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 I'm wondering is that a is is it a class thing? I mean, what what what's behind that? Well, there's two things. It's not quite right what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, when people are given uh, options between choosing whether they're middle class or working class, uh, about half say they're working class and half say they're they're middle class. Okay. If you ask somebody straight out, how what class are you in? The most common answer is, uh, well, I'm not poor. And I'm not rich, so I guess you'd say I'm in the middle class. But many people use the term working class. Politicians now use it mm-hmm. uh, to define themselves, sometimes and not other times. Um, and middle class often means middle income. And many working class people are middle income and above. Interesting. So, and I guess that's what I was wondering was that, you know, I think, you know, it's the kind of thing where somebody asks, I, I think, you know, it's a definitional question, right? There is that. Yes, the definitional question is part of it. But but my point is many people, a large group of people identify as working class. And there was a uh, election survey done in the in the 2000s sometime that asked people to rank, uh, you know, they do these temperature things where do you feel warm about this group or that group? <laughs> okay. <laughs> 31 groups and working class people come out on top above, above everybody else, above old people and women and middle class, not to mention uh, business and, and uh, upper class. Uh, so it, it, working class is a concept that's out there, um, but it, it actually until quite recently in politics, you were not permitted to use the term. Yeah, well, that's what that's, communist. Right? No, I know, and that's what I'm wondering about. Then, and I'm wondering. I, I do feel like there has been a change in the last few years, and 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 I'm wondering if there is sort of, um, I don't know. It's kind of like the word organic, which of course has become wildly abused. All sorts of things are called organic now, and 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 you know, I don't know what they're talking about. 
Um, but, but it's because people feel good about it. You know, oh, yeah, that's, that's an organic whatever, right? As opposed to, you know, if it's not organic, it must, it must be, you know, bad for you, which, of course, you know, none of these things are true. And I'm wondering if working classes come to represent some sort of, I don't know, you know, have some sort of authenticity to about it, right? I mean, that you're working with your hands and, and you know, as opposed to middle class, which frankly, I think is a very, I've seen people, you know, you know, making anywhere from 50,000 to 200,000 consider themselves, you know, middle class, which can't possibly be true, right? Well, <laughs> I don't know. It depends on your definition, but. You got very <laughs> different lives at up around two hundred thousand than yeah, you do. 50, yeah, you're just not part of the same group. So, so that's what I'm wondering. You know, to what and and maybe you know this is something that that is part of what you're exploring, right? I mean, it is is what what is meant by this, and it's important. I, I can think of for a lot of reasons. It's important, obviously, as you're pointing out for politics right how people self-identify how other people identify um it's it's important maybe in terms of aspirations right in terms of what people want for their kids so so and it's also you know again this is a country that doesn't really like to talk about class um and and you know even though obviously we do have classes right yes and what i try to do in the book is talk about class in a way that is not hierarchical mm-hmm. um, so that middle-class culture and working-class culture are equally valuable and productive, not only for the people who live within them, but for society as a whole and for each other. That's the core argument of the, uh, of the book. And within working-class culture, you mentioned authenticity. That's one of the things that is most highly valued in working-class culture even though the word is almost never used. Um, and there's probably a connection between that. Because like sincerity, if you try to pursue authenticity, um, that makes it harder to be authentic. You, know? <laughs> you, can't, you can't be authentic if you're trying to be authentic. And almost, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost a contradiction. And, and there is, um, among us middle class people, there is an, a, a performative aspect to the way we behave. Uh, in a way that there there isn't in the in the working class, um, we had in Chicago a group of where well, we got college college student activists to uh, meet with labor and community organizers, young ones, when there began to be some in the two thousands, <laughs> and one of the uh, actually many of the middle class organizers from middle class backgrounds and students. Um, said about working with working class people, you know, no bullshit. We really like them because there's no bullshit. But one one young woman said, and I think this is perfect, is, yeah, they're they're really honest and not just in words. So you know, it's something about the behavior that is different from uh, middle class. Not that middle class performative nature is all bad. It can be, but. Uh, there is that difference. Yeah, I was going to ask you about what you meant by performative. Um, uh, is, is that what you're talking about, about that people are sort of more honest? Or, or what, what does that mean? Uh, it, it means, well, people being more honest in, in, in more than just words is that they're not calculating how uh, 
were going to be received. Whereas as a middle-class professional, I have been thoroughly trained in calculating how I'm going to be perceived and uh, adjusting myself. Uh, right, right, right. I see what you mean. Different. Well, it's interesting because you may have caught a little bit of my, the previous segment uh, with, with yeah. uh, Congressman Levin. He was talking about Trumpka, Rich Trumpka, the AFL-CIO president. And that was sort of one of the points I was trying to make was that – and this I found, you know, by and large, it's pretty – uniformly true of these, you know, labor leaders who certainly financially, you know, are, are absolutely middle class. Economically, they are absolutely middle class. And, and educationally. Yet, yeah, educationally, economically, and in all of those markers. And and yet in in a lot of ways, I would argue, uh, you know, are very working class, certainly in their approach, you know, to, to life, uh, like me, they, except when I'm on the radio, they swear like a sailor. Um, but not to say that middle-class people don't swear, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get along in, in, in most white collar jobs, you know, uh, swearing and telling people off. Whereas in the, in, in the labor movement, that's fairly, you know, that that's, that's what we do. You know? <laughs> right. And and something uh, like ritual mockery, sort of making fun of people yes. in a way that you're oh, actually yeah. being affectionate. Absolutely. Inclusive. Uh, let, let me do say uh, about the book that, you know, a lot of it is academic and, and theoretical, um, drawing on many different disciplines. But there's also a, a memoirish part of it that reflects my own life across eight decades now, seven, seven and a half. Um, I grew up in a uh, still extended steelworker family in an isolated Appalachian mill town where we lived in the Valley and our betters lived on a hill. So a very extreme working class environment. And then I spent my working life in a hyper professional middle-class environment, namely higher education. So I feel like, a little whip, whiplash there. <laughs> well, believe me. Um, so I feel like I've seen the two cultures in their purity, but mm-hmm. there's all this mix. I was a labor educator. I was an adult uh, educator. I was involved in the uh, in the labor movement, and lots of those junctures, including in universities that have predominantly working class students, uh, junctures of middle class and, and working class cultures. And I really think that's the way, you, as you talk about labor leaders, um, you can't be successful and not get some of that down to earthness and authenticity, uh, even as you, you're delivering a prepared speech that you very you carefully thought out. You've got to have that ear and that sense uh, or you can't communicate. That's a, it's such an amazing uh, trip. I, I know so many folks who have made that same journey uh, as, as you have, uh, you know, from, from the working class or, or, you know, from the, you know, the bottom of the working class to, you know, worlds of academia in particular, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I, I grew up, my, my dad, you know, was, was a teacher when I was a kid and, so I was comfortable in that world, but I really, it, it, it really is a very different world. Let's just say that, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, that the things that are valued, you know, as you say, in the working class world, the directness. I remember when my, when my wife went to grad school and uh, she showed me her papers and, you know, the way that she had to write 
uh, was completely opposite from the way that I had been taught. Rather than being direct about things, you had to write around things and use many more words and complicated <laughs> phrases. And I didn't know what the heck was being talked about. I was like, why don't you just say it this way? It's like, well, we need more words. We need more, we need more words, bigger words. <laughs> yeah, I, wonderful talking to you, Jack. Uh, the, the, uh, the book. Uh, you're going to want to check it out, Bridging the Divide. Uh, Jack Metzger is the author, and uh, thank you so much for writing the book, and thanks for being on Your Rights at Work, Jack. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris, for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Uh, as promised, we're going to end up uh, with uh, with some music, and I believe uh, Mike has our little intro queued up, and so let's let's have that. Uh, you're listening to Your Rights at Work with Chris Garlock. And they'll all sing bread and roses, Joe Hill and Union Bay. They'll link their arms and tell each other, we are not afraid. Solidarity forever We'll go rolling through the hall We shall overcome together One and all We shall overcome together One and all And that was our next guest, George Mann and Friends. George, thanks so much for being on Your Right to Work. Good afternoon, Chris. Thank you for having me and good to hear your voice. Oh, man, don't worry about my voice. Your voice is what's important. They all sang Bread and Roses. What a gorgeous song. Tell us about it. Well, thanks. There was this a snippet of it at the end of it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a beautiful song written by Cy Khan that um, not many people have recorded over the years. I was curious uh, since I've always loved that song and I remember hearing it many years ago at a labor festival um, and uh, we recorded it for the new album, A World Like This. Uh, it's one of the softer songs and one of, one of the labor theme songs on my new record. I've been uh, making labor folk music, protest roots music, whatever you want to call it for many, many years. And, and I always like to include at least a couple of songs that are, are, are straight out worker songs like that one. Beautiful song by Saikon. And yeah, no, and it really is. And, and I, I'll be honest, of course, I knew the Bread and Roses song, but I did not know this song. And so I'm really, uh, and, and now I know why, because nobody's recorded it other than, than, than size. So, so thanks for, for bringing it back to us. That's uh, really an important service you're, you're providing there. Well, that's the funny thing about it. When I first, I mean, I, I thought of doing it for this new record, I went looking for it online and I found an old recording of Psy from a live album so, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Ronnie Gilbert did record it on one of her solo albums in the late eighties, early nineties, um, uh, which I, I don't think I've ever heard the recording until I found it online, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's one of Psy's obscure songs and yet one of his most direct and, and I think certainly beautiful uh, and resonant for, for those of us in the labor movement. So, George, you're up in, in uh, mile stomping grounds, upstate New York, uh, Ithaca, to be more precise. And uh, I know you've basically been, you know, more or less locked down. You were telling us you when you came to talk to the Labor Radio Podcast Network yesterday, uh, you, you should you should have been in Australia right now on a three week tour uh, and said you're in gorgeous, gorgeous uh, Ithaca, which is full of gorgeous. It's a play on words, people. Never mind. 
Um, well, only some people will know that. Yes, I, I live, know. I, live, I know. I live near the gorges of Ithaca, just outside the city, and uh, moved from New York City about eleven years ago. Yeah, but but um, uh, left the uh, you know for her quieter lifestyle and uh, and 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 using Ithaca as my home base. You know, as you said, until uh, the coronavirus hit, I I was maybe on the road two to three months a year, not all the time like some of my friends in the labor and folk music world uh, who travel and toured a lot more even than me. Um, but I did a lot of work for nursing and veterans homes and still do in upstate New York and even on the road. But it's been so hard. Yeah, I would have been in the middle of three or four week tour to Australia uh, right now. But all the festivals have been canceled. All the most of the folk clubs are not meeting or meeting only virtually. So, uh, you know, you, you can't perform uh, live. And, and I did one tour this summer out to the West, West Coast, mostly out virtually all outdoor gigs, you know, working in Washington and even then felt. I was worried that I was helping spread the disease, you know, the pandemic, or maybe I was going to get it. So as much fun as it was to see great for old friends and play for some of the people I've been playing for in Oregon, Washington and, and for years, um, it, it's a really hard for performers right now to plan uh, and expect that you'll be able to fulfill performances in the near future. I'm not even thinking until next spring at the earliest, actually. Well, and that's what I want to talk a little bit about. I mean, I mean, you know the the life of a performer. You know, unless you're the top, you know, probably point oh oh one percent. But for the you know the working working performers like yourself, uh, it's never been easy. I mean, I mean, you know, we we talked about this yesterday. I mean, maybe there was a there was a moment for folk singers. There was a moment in the late fifties, early sixties. Uh, you know, but since then, uh, it's really been tough and. Uh, you know, and I'd love to talk about this as well, the advent of the new technology. But I mean, so it seems to me like folks like yourself are facing two things. I mean, first of all, a a, a form folk singing, which uh, I mean, I don't know how well it translates to TikTok. Uh, <laughs> uh, do, you have, do you have any folk music, uh, labor folk music dance moves you could uh, break out for us? No, and at my age, it's probably advisable that I don't. <laughs> Although, since I'm getting up there and, you know, I know what you're talking about, you know, that model that we, um, we, we operated under for many years has changed and was changing even prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so, and not just performers, you know, who are, you know, solo or small ensembles of folk musicians, any performer, uh, theater, of course, you know, poetry readings, all these kind of things, book, book, you know, readings, all these things altered. Um, and all the support crew, let's not forget the IOTC staff and sound and lighting and, and you know, road crews that are part of this, uh, ushers and people who are part and volunteers who are part of community theater and community folk organizations. It's been a real rough 18, 20 months now. And, uh, and as I said, you know, it's hard to see us turning the corner, but let's cross our fingers that if enough people uh, continue to practice safely, you know, uh, their, their, their hygiene and, of course, get vaccinated. Uh, we can stay ahead of this uh, and somehow beat this back into submission, this pandemic. So let me ask you about I me. Mean, you were you were saying that, you know, the pandemic has actually had a bit of a silver lining for you. You've actually, I think, released two CDs uh, in the in the last uh, year, year and a half, which has probably that's that's not your normal rate of production, I'm thinking. 
Well, yeah, I was joking, of course, when I said you know, I didn't want to say it. it's been kind to me because it has been horrible. And I've watched dozens, I mean, literally dozens and dozens mm-hmm. of people I know die in the homes I sing in. Sure. I mean, I've had several homes get hit where they just lost 40 to 60 residents. Mm-hmm. And I knew many of them as well as I know you, Chris, and mm-hmm. sung to them for years. You know, some of these places I play twice a month or more. Um, so, yeah, you know, when it got when certain homes got hit. Um, I've dealt with that kind of, you know, just if uh, you get used to to death and the kind of work I do in the nursing and veterans homes anyway. But when it got get like that, you know, it's it's well, I'm not there. So or wasn't there during the first year or so. It's only during this last few months that people have been able to resume live performances in many of these environments um, and often outside, you know, uh-huh. but the. But the silver lining, quote unquote, is, of course, uh, for me is being home so much. Uh, I've been more productive as a songwriter and, and, and recorded two albums in the last year and a half. Yes. So uh, a year after we put out the coronavirus sessions, that same stream of music that's kept coming through me. Um, I wrote seven more songs for this new record, uh, included a couple of lovely old songs like Saikon's song, Bread and, you know, they all sang Bread and Roses and um, and a song about Julius, my old songwriting and, and, and uh, performance and, and recording partner for many years. So uh, the new album, A World Like This, came out of that and many of these songs deal with that you know deal with the uh, the separation the isolation um the loneliness that that inevitably attaches to something that's gone on this long i mean not everyone has um i mean i mean i have friends and i have support family and i have two lovely cats but uh it's been a long and long hard struggle and for those of us who who enjoy being in front of people Mm -hmm. and of course you know part of being giving with the music we make of course is giving back to people and uh, honoring the people who came before us, always singing the songs of our heroes and mentors and, and, and the great, you know, songs of the labor movement, you know, Joe Hill, Woody Guthrie, Utah Phillips, those, those kind of people, you know, no, so no, it's no. hard not, not being in front of a stage much. And I hope that changes. Uh, I'm due to do some concerts in Florida in February is the first time I think I'll be venturing out in public per se. No. And that's what I wanted to, to, to ask about is, is that, you know, you are a performer, and and I've seen you. You know, anytime you come through DC, you know, uh, uh, you know, gone out, and, and and so a big part of what you do is going out there performing live, um, and and so, you know, to not be able to to do that, I just think, I mean, it's been a hardship for us all, right? You know, everybody, you know, who's had to be either, you know, in, you know, either locked up in the house, or even when you know those people. I was thinking about this, uh, you know, because I do the grocery shopping and, and even something. And I, I like grocery shopping. I like I always talk to the, the checkout folks around here, you know, their union, a giant and Safeway. And even that's become a weird experience, right? Because now they've got these plastic guards up and they have a mask on and I have a mask on. And so you have, you, have the, you know, it, it's not, you know, are we in person? Yeah, but but not really. So, so I'm thinking about for something small like that, but for somebody like you, that's used to going out and performing to hundreds or thousands, you know, uh that's that's got to be a real hardship i'm thinking oh sure like i said you know i would have just wrapped up the kangaroo valley folk festival <laughs> in australia last weekend and been in the middle of three weeks of seeing my friends in australia it's now two years and these are some of my dearest friends in the world even though i've only been touring australia since 2011 you make connections with people that first sure. year or two and they're still with you you know uh, and they still are part of your your chain of support and the people who help support your work when you're over there and here in the states the same 
same thing, you know. Um, that's why I was saying, you know, the the, the there is a uh, the positive side to me for me, of course, is that when I'm even if I'm on the camera, like I am uh, often with with the folks doing Skype or Zoom visits or small groups on the home, if I can't even go in there live, I know that that's making a difference in their day and their week, and and you know helping keep them cope with the the pandemic too in the homes I sing in and. Um, yeah, as I said, uh, the, we've been in some of the festivals and, you know, some of the song circles. There's a lot of work going on to keep people going and to keep music alive. It's just it is a different thing, Chris, when you're not in front of people, when you're doing it over the over the, the screen, you know. So uh, that 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 is a, I find that alienating to a degree, but it's the best we can do, you know, uh, until until such time as we can be back doing that stuff uh, live. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Let me ask you about the, the changes in, in technology. Um, you talked about this a little bit yesterday as, as well. You know, I mean, you, you have a CD out. You even use the word record, which, you know, so, some folks, although I hear records are having a bit of a comeback. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess maybe I should have gotten rid of all of mine. But uh, you know, when you 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 have, I'm sure, a home studio. You you know, you you sent me an MP3. Uh, you know, so but you are still making CDs. I don't know if you're pressing records or not. But where where what's your take? Uh, you've been through a lot of format changes in your lifetime. Cassettes. I don't know if you ever did eight tracks, but you certainly have done. You know, cassettes. I wasn't that old. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now. Uh, uh, just on the cusp of it, um, but I remember eight tracks, of course. Um, well, yes, um, CDs are still preferred by many of the DJs and the folk and, and American and Rus Americana, you know, uh, fields. So, yeah, you press the CDs for them initially, and I've mailed out over two hundred CDs in the last ten days of this new album, a world like this, just as it's getting out. But we also have the electronic package, which Art Menius is handling. He's doing radio promo for me. And it's all there in one folder that you can send a link to. They can download the songs they want, the songs they don't like. They don't have to download. Uh, they can download the whole album if they want. And all the background stuff's there, too. So, yeah. Uh, and believe it or not, the online sales are are certainly surpassing CD sales because you can't perform right now. Uh, generally, you know, you always expect it to sell a few CDs, if not on a good night, a few more than that uh, in, in a good concert. But uh, if you're not performing, you can't, you know, the only way to sell CDs is through the mail, you know, and they can do that. So people can obviously go to my website or, or any, you know, they go online to, any, you know, georgeman.org is where I, uh, you know, all my work is, is, is there, but you can go on Amazon or iTunes or whatever and download and they'll give me the 56 cents on a dollar uh you know take take 40 cents a dollar roughly um but it's it's not an easy world but like i said back to the album the recording of the album was a wonderful process because i'm in this wonderful old studio it's an old church it was built a hundred and more than a hundred years ago just outside Ithaca. it's called wilverland and that's where i've made most of my records for 10 years or most of my recording since i moved here and uh, wonderful musicians playing with me, the same group of players that were on my last album. So we're very comfortable together. And uh, and the songs came out. And I think, I hope people will give them a listen because, uh, 
you know, there, there's labor folk kind of quiet songs and there's songs with the full band, which are the songs that are more political, like We Only Turn Right Around Here about Georgia. Yes, and, yes. Uh, and about the turning, uh, about the changing of the voting laws that are, are happening. And I know you're going to play in another song about, uh, what's his name? I don't miss what's his name at all. He, he, he whose name shall not be spoken on our yeah, program. Yeah, um, so, so there was some fun in this record, too. Uh, at the same time that there are some very serious songs and, and you know, uh, very powerful music, I feel, too. Well, that actually sets up. I wanted to try and get uh, uh, my co-host, Ed Smith, is a musician, and he always hates it when I only play snippets. He wants to hear the whole song. So I was hoping to get in uh, that last song. And I wanted to play it partly because of the content, but also because it's a bit of a jazzy uh, feel to it. And of course, uh, WPFW is all about jazz and justice. So why don't you, why don't you set up that, that song and we'll go out with it. Sure. I think it's about three minutes or so. So again, mm-hmm. I, I'm watching whatever clock you tell me to shut up and I'll shut up. But, but you, got um, about, you got about 60 seconds. Great. Well, I hope people will check me out. You can find me on the web on Facebook. George Mann with two ends.org is my website. There's an online store there. You can order my music. Um, I am doing a Kickstarter project, not to you know make too much of this, but it helps. I mean, the last stage just to making a record alone is over two thousand mm, dollars just mm. to press the CDs and mail you know three dollars and twenty cents a pop to, to hundreds of DJs and people in the folk and labor world. So um, I really get, I try to give a lot to my, my 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 community and to the people I sing for. Um, I gave I, I can't work on the labor movement and do the music as I used to. You know, I did that for many years, and I. About 20 years ago, I guess it was the last time I worked in the labor movement as an organizer, but my heart is always there. So um, with that, we'll go into this last song called I Don't Miss What's-His-Name at All. George Mann, wonderful to have you here as always. And again, George, uh, georgeman.com. Our show today, engineered by Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman. You've been listening to Your Rights at Work. We'll see you all next week. Here they go. We Thanks don't miss What's-His-Name at All. The sun is out, the sky is blue Amazing what six months will do And I don't miss what's his name at all The market's sat an all-time high And come to think of it, so am I And I don't miss what's his name at all That pompous, gaseous the last four years of drag but it was so fun to watch him fall simplistic crass misogynistic the bully who's the biggest dipstick we don't miss what's his name at all I sweep the deck I mow the lawn and kick back with a beer
key. When he's not here, this gig's a breeze. 